0: In the year of the Peterloo Massacre, Britain stood on the brink of an era of industrialisation led by the cotton mills and weaving sheds of Manchester and its surrounding towns. Smitten by mental illness, George III was unable to carry out the duties of King. His son, George Prince Regent, ruled in his stead. The government of Lord Liverpool and his Home Secretary Sidmouth was the most repressive that modern Britain has seen. Manchester was a rapidly growing city, its population of more than one hundred thousand, swollen by the spinners and weavers who had come to work in the cotton industry. Yet the government of Manchester remained the feudal property of the Moseley family, and the city sent no representative to Parliament. Local government was in the hands of a borough-reeve and his two constables, and justice was administered by the Lancashire magistrates, landowners and clergymen, appointed by the Crown, and reporting to the Home Secretary. The magistrates play a crucial role in the story of Peterloo, because it was they who had the power to call on the army and raise local militia in times of unrest. Law and order was in the hands of Deputy Constable Joseph Nadine, the infamous Nady Joe. While the Manchester manufacturers might influence local politics, they had no direct say. Needless to say, the spinners and weavers had no say at all, But a movement for political reform had begun in the Hampden clubs that had sprung up in the northern towns of Royton, Oldham, Rochdale, Middleton, Stockport and Ashton-under-Lyne. Francis Bruton
1: The employment of mounted troops and infantry in quelling civil disturbances, protecting property and dispersing crowds was a common practice for years before the catastrophe in St Peter's Fields. And, of course, troops were used subsequently especially during the Chartist disturbances just 20 years later, when Sir Charles Napier was placed in command of nearly 6,000 men in the north and stationed 2,000 of them at Manchester, which he regarded as a danger centre. We must, however, carefully distinguish between cases where there was open riot and instances where there was not even a threat of disorder. At the famous Shude Hill fight in 1757, the soldiers were only ordered to fire when one of their number had been killed, And nine wounded by the rioters. The result of the volley was that four people were killed and 15 wounded. In 1812 Shude Hill was again the scene of disorder when the cavalry were called in and the riot act was read. In the same year the Great Depression led to disorder at Stockport when a troop of the Cheshire Yeomanry cleared an area of a 100 acres in less than 10 minutes. This year also saw very serious machine riots at Middleton where the Scots-Greys and Cumberland militia were used with fatal results. At the conclusion of the Napoleonic War, the Corn Bill led to fresh disturbances, which continued more or less up to the date of Peterloo, the chief causes being unemployment, the scarcity of food, and the terrible social and economic conditions under which the operatives and their families lived. We may form some faint conception of these conditions by reading such a report as that issued by Dr K., afterwards Sir James K. Shuttleworth, years after the date of Peterloo. The details he gives as to the sanitary conditions in Manchester are such that we could hardly quote them here. Between 1750 and 1820, it must be remembered, the population of Manchester increased sevenfold. Yet the town was still under the old manorial system, with no local government whatever, and the great mass of its inhabitants. It is this that makes the situation so cruel, were, in a public sense, inarticulate. For Manchester had no parliamentary representative. The overworked population, writes Dr K, had scarcely any means of education, except Sunday schools, dame schools and adventure schools. They were ignorant, harassed with toil, inflamed with drink and often goaded with want, owing to sudden depressions of trade. In a memorial sent up to Lord Sidmouth, the Home Secretary, only a few weeks before the catastrophe of Peterloo, The magistrates sitting at the New Bailey Courthouse in Salford make pointed reference to the deep distresses of the manufacturing classes of this extensive population and go so far as to say when the people are oppressed with hunger we do not wonder at their giving ear to any doctrines which they are told will redress their grievances. In the years 1815 and 1816 the masses were already feeling their way towards a solution of their difficulties. The writings of Cobbett were eagerly read. Hampton clubs were formed in the distressed districts, and universal suffrage, annual parliaments, and a reform of the currency were held up as the sovereign cure for the ills of the workers. Hence the agitators earned for themselves the name of reformers. In addition to Cobbett, the workers looked up to five or six public men as their leaders and champions, and one of these became the hero of the Peterloo massacre. They were Sir Francis Burdett, Lord Cochrane, Major Cartwright, Sir Charles Wolseley, Mr Henry Hunt, and, at one part of his career, Lord Brougham. Samuel Bamford, a Middleton weaver, reformer and poet,
0: published his first-hand account of the events of Peterloo in the 1840s, in the second volume of his memoirs, Passages in the Life of a Radical. An educated man, Bamford was chosen to be secretary of the Middleton Hampden Club on its formation in 1815. It is a matter of history that whilst the laurels were yet cool on the brows of our victorious soldiers on their second occupation of Paris, the elements of convulsion were at work among the masses of our labouring population, and that a series of disturbances commenced with the introduction of the Corn Bill in 1815, and continued with short intervals until the close of the year 1816. In London and Westminster, riots ensued, and were continued for several days, whilst the bill was discussed. At Bridport, there were riots on account of the high price of bread. At Bideford, there were similar disturbances to prevent the exportation of grain. At Berry, by the unemployed, to destroy machinery. At Ely, not suppressed without bloodshed. At Newcastle-on-Tyne, by Colliers and others. At Glasgow, where blood was shed, at Preston by unemployed weavers, at Nottingham by Luddites who destroyed thirty frames, at Merthyr Tidville on a reduction of wages, at Birmingham by the unemployed, and at Dundee, where owing to the high price of meal, upwards of one hundred shops were plundered. At this time the writings of William Cobbett suddenly became of great authority. They were read on nearly every cottage hearth in the manufacturing districts of South Lancashire, in those of Leicester, Derby and Nottingham, also in many of the Scottish manufacturing towns. Their influence was speedily visible. He directed his readers to the true cause of their sufferings, misgovernment, and to its proper corrective, parliamentary reform. Riots soon became scarce, and from that time they have never obtained their ancient vogue with the labourers of this country. Let us not descend to be unjust, let us not withhold the homage which, with all the faults of William Cobbett, is still due to his great name. Instead of riots and destruction of property, Hamden clubs were now established in many of our large towns, and the villages and districts around them. Cobbett's books were printed in a cheap form. The labourers read them, and thenceforward became deliberate and systematic in their proceedings. Nor were there wanting men of their own class, to encourage and direct the new converts. The Sunday schools of the preceding thirty years had produced many working men of sufficient talent to become readers, writers and speakers in the village meetings for parliamentary reform. Some also were found to possess a rude poetic talent which rendered their refusions popular and bestowed an additional charm on their assemblages. And by such various means, anxious listeners at first and then zealous proselytes were drawn from the cottages of quiet nooks and dingles to the weekly readings and discussions of the Hampden Clubs. One of these clubs was established in 1816 at the small town of Middleton near Manchester, and I, having been instrumental in its formation, a tolerable reader also, and a rather expert writer, was chosen secretary. The club prospered, the number of men increased, the funds raised by contributions of a penny a week became more than sufficient for all outgoings, and taking a bold step, we soon rented a chapel, which had been given up by a society of Kilomite Methodists. This place we threw open for the religious worship of all sects and parties, and there we held our meetings on the evenings of Monday and Saturday in each week. The proceedings of our society, its place of meeting, singular as being the first place of worship occupied by reformers, for so in those days we were termed, together with the services of religion connected with us, drew a considerable share of public attention to our transactions, and obtained for the leaders some notoriety. They, like the young aspirants of the present, and all the other days, whose heads are as warm as their hearts, could sing with old John Bunyan, then fancies fly away, we fear not what men say.' Several meetings of delegates from the surrounding districts were held at our chapel, on which occasions the leading reformers of Lancashire were generally seen together. One of our delegate meetings deserves particular notice. It was held on Sunday, the sixteenth December, eighteen sixteen, when it was determined to send out missionaries to other towns and villages, particularly to Yorkshire. The experiment was considered somewhat hazardous, for at that time the great towns of Yorkshire, Halifax, Bradford and Leeds, to which they were bound, had shown but small sympathy with the cause of reform. They went, however, and I believe made an impression which awakened the cause in that county. At this meeting, a man of the name of William Wilson appeared as the delegate from Moston. He was known to several present, and being considered a good reformer, was chosen secretary for the occasion. He thus took copies of all the resolutions and proceedings. Soon afterwards, it was discovered that he was in communication with the police of Manchester. He then left the district, abandoning his wife and a young family of children, and was next heard of as a police officer in London, to which place his wife and children followed him. Can this have been our first traitor? On the 1st of January, 1817, A meeting of delegates from twenty-one petitioning bodies was held in our chapel, when resolutions were passed, declaratory of the right of every male to vote who paid taxes, that males of eighteen should be eligible to vote, that Parliament should be elected annually, that no placeman or pensioner should sit in Parliament, that every twenty-thousand inhabitants should send a member to the House of Commons, and that talent and virtue were the only qualifications necessary. It was as representative of the Middleton Club that Bamford first met Henry Hunt in London. The Hampden Club of London, of which Sir Francis Burdett was the chairman, having issued circulars for a meeting of delegates at the Crown and Anchor for the purpose of discussing a bill to be presented to the House of Commons, embracing the reform we sought, I was chosen to represent the Middleton Club on that occasion, I shall not notice the abuse which this small honour brought upon my shoulders, further than to say that it gave me an unexpected insight into the weakness of some whom I had considered as the best of friends to myself and the cause. I thus early got a dose of disgust which would have banished me from amongst them, had I not considered that by retiring I should abandon my duty and gratify my new enemies. I therefore took up my cross, forgave them, and attended my appointment in London. I had scarcely alighted from the coach at the Elephant and Castle ere I was accosted by William Bembo, a shoemaker of Birch near Middleton, who took me to his own lodgings near Buckingham Gate, where I became comfortably settled for the present. He had been in London some time, agitating the labouring classes at their trades meetings and club-houses. That night he conducted me to the Crown and Anchor tavern and whilst I stood gazing around a large hall, which seemed wonderfully grand and silent for a tavern, a gentleman came out of a room and accosted my companion, who increased my curiosity and awe by pronouncing the name of Mr Hunt. He invited us within, and there we found a small party of delegates, recently arrived, in friendly conversation with Mr Cleary, the secretary of the London Club. This was an event in my life. Of Mr. Hunt, known as Orator Hunt, I had imbibed a high opinion, and his first appearance did not diminish my expectations. He was gentlemanly in his manner and attire, six feet and better in height, and extremely well formed. He was dressed in a blue lapelled coat, light waistcoat and curses, and top boots. His leg and foot were about the firmest and neatest I ever saw. He wore his own hair, It was in moderate quantity and a little grey. His features were regular, and there was a kind of youthful blandness about them, which, in amicable discussion, gave his face a most agreeable expression. His lips were delicately thin and receding, but there was a dumb utterance about them, which in all the portraits I have seen of him was never truly copied. His eyes were blue or light grey, not very clear nor quick, but rather heavy, except as I afterwards had opportunities for observing, when he was excited in speaking, at which times they seemed to distend and protrude, and if he worked himself furious as he sometimes would, they became blood-streaked, and almost started from their sockets. Then it was that the expression of his lip was to be observed. The kind smile was exchanged for the curl or scorn, or the curse of indignation. His voice was bellowing, his face swollen and flushed, his griped hand beat as if it were to pulverise, and his whole manner gave token of a painful energy, struggling for utterance. Such was the appearance of Mr. Hunt as I saw him that night, and on subsequent occasions. His everyday manners exhibiting the quality and operations of his mind will, of necessity, occupy some portion of the future pages of this work. He was constantly perhaps through good but misapplied intentions, placing himself in most arduous situations. No repose, no tranquillity for him, he was always beating against a tempest of his own or others creating. He had thus more to sustain than any other man of his day and station, and should be judged accordingly. Thomas Cleary, the secretary of the Hamden Club, was also in the room, He was perhaps twenty-five or twenty-six years of age, about middle stature, slightly formed, and had a warmth and alacrity in his manner which created at once respect and confidence. He was, and I have no doubt is yet, if he be living, worthy of and enjoying the esteem of all who know him. Hunt ferociously traduced his character at a subsequent election for Westminster, but the shame recoiled on the calumniator. Afterwards he attempted to fix upon Cleary the stigma of being a government spy, and intimated that he tried about this time to involve some of the delegates in illegal transactions, a charge as absurd as it was false. The day of meeting arrived. Sir Francis Burdett was in the country, and the worthy old Major Cartwright, a major in the militia, a reformer from 1780, took the chair, With a picture of that venerable patriot in my recollection, let me pause and render the tribute due to integrity and benevolence. He was far in years, I should suppose about seventy, rather above the common stature, straight for his age, thin, pale, and with an expression of countenance in which firmness and benignity were most predominant. I see him, as it were, in his long brown surtout and plain brown wig, walking up the room, "'and seating himself placidly in the head-seat. "'A mild smile played upon his features "'as a simultaneous cheer burst from the meeting. "'Cobbett stood near his right hand. "'I had not seen him before. "'Had I met him anywhere save in that room and on that occasion, "'I should have taken him for a gentleman farming his own broad estate. "'He seemed to have that kind of self-possession and ease about him, "'together with a certain bantering jollity.' which are so natural to fast-handed and well-housed lords of the soil. He was, I should suppose, not less than six feet in height, portly with a fresh, clear and round cheek, and a small grey eye, twinkling with good-humoured archness. He was dressed in a blue coat, yellow swans-down waistcoat, drab, cursey small clothes, and top-boots. His hair was grey, and his cravat and linen were fine and very white in short, he was the perfect representation of what he always wished to be, an English gentleman farmer. The proceedings of the meeting it is not requisite that I should go into, they have long been matters of record. The absence of the baronet was the subject of much observation by the delegates, and yet, in deference to his wishes, as was understood, a resolution was introduced and supported by Cobbett, limiting the suffrage to householders. This was opposed by many, and especially by the delegates from the manufacturing district, some of whom were surprised that so important a concession should be made to the opinion of any individual. Hunt treated the idea with little respect, and I thought he felt no discomfort at obtaining a sarcastic fling or two at the baronet. Cobbett advocated the restricted measure, scarcely in earnest and weakly, and alleging the impracticability of universal suffrage. The discussion proceeded for some time, and no one grappled the objection, until, fearing the resolution would be adopted, I, in a few words, explained how universal suffrage might be carried into effect by taking the voters from the militia list, or others made on the same plan. Hunt took up the idea, in a way which I thought rather annoyed Cobbett, who at length arose and expressed his conviction of its practicability giving me all the merit of his conversion. Resolutions in favour of universal suffrage and annual parliaments were thereupon carried, and soon afterwards the meeting was adjourned to the day following. Several of our country delegates were now presented to Cobbett by Bembo, who appeared to act almost as master of the ceremonies. I was not, however, introduced to the great man, and soon after he left the room. On the day when Parliament was opened a number of the delegates met Hunt at the Golden Cross, Charing Cross, and from thence went with him in procession to the residence of Lord Cochrane in Palace Yard, where a large petition from Bristol, and most of those from the north of England, were placed in his lordship's hands. There had been some tumult in the morning. The Prince Regent had been insulted on his way to the house, and this part of the town was still in a degree of excitement we were crowded around and accompanied by a great multitude, which at intervals rent the air with shouts. Now it was that I beheld Hunt in his element. He unrolled the partition which was many yards in length, and it was carried on the heads of the crowd perfectly unharmed. He seemed to know almost every man of them, and his confidence in an entire mastery over them made him quite at ease. A louder huzzah than common was music to him, and when the questions were asked eagerly, "'Who is he? What are they about?' and the reply was, "'Hunt! Hunt! Huzzah!' his gratification was expressed by a stern smile. He might be likened to the genius of commotion, calling forth its elements and controlling them at will. On arriving at Palace Yard, we were shown into a room below stairs, and whilst Lord Cochrane and Hunt conversed above, a slight and elegant young lady, dressed in white and very interesting, served us with wine. She is, if I am not misinformed, now Lady Dundonald. At length his lordship came to us. He was a tall young man, cordial and unaffected in his manner. He stooped a little, and had somewhat of a sailor's gait in walking. His face was rather oval, fair naturally, but now tanned and sun-freckled. His hair was sandy, his whiskers rather small, and of a deeper colour and the expression of his countenance was calm and self-possessed. He took charge of our petitions, and being seated in an armchair, we lifted him up and bore him on our shoulders across Palace Yard to the door of Westminster Hall, the old rafters of which rung with the shouts of the vast multitude outside. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go, we'll mount the cap of liberty, in spite of Nady Joe.